Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hello, Snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European Podcast with me, Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. So here's a fantastic offer just for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to TNE's print and digital package for just £2 a week. For that, £2 a week, you get unlimited digital access to our archive, plus our award-winning newspaper is delivered to your door every week for a year. Wow. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, you can subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. There's a lot going on this week, including the moment when, under fierce questioning from Kay Burley, Michael Gove turned into Max Headroom. Um, but, um, and Personal email? Uh, yeah, there were lots of people who approached me, whether it was through email, text, um, or, uh, or, uh, 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 Coming up, the award-winning correspondent Owen Matthews on Putin's disastrous war in Ukraine. We will be asking, are we getting closer to the Brexit tipping point? And we'll also be putting more deserving candidates into our Hall of Shame. Joining me are the new Europeans, Eleanor Longman-Rood. Hello, Ellie. Hi, Steve. And Matt Withers. Hello there. And Matt, your interview with Owen Matthews is coming up. I wanted to start with domestic things and just to say Brexit's going really well isn't it um Ellie what have been your Brexit highlights of the week Brexit highlight that feels like some sort of contradiction in in terms really so um as our cover this week in the cartoon by Martin Rosen has suggested the effects of Brexit are becoming if not have already become slightly nauseating um so in sort of George Eustace the sequel this week we've had The keen and avid Brexiteer David Davis has now admitted that Brexit has not delivered any major economic benefits, which is just excellent. Uh, The former Brexit secretary, who really championed the case of leaving the EU to boost our economy, um, did then actually say, no, 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 it's it's all COVID's fault um, for the lack of results. You know, had we not had the pandemic, we'd be thriving and booming away. Um, He did then sort of, you know, say we'd had minor benefits such as the UK beginning 
delivery of COVID vaccines in 2020 before, before the rest of Europe. Um, and he did then also go back to this typical narrative that we keep hearing that Brexit can deliver. I still believe in Brexit. Um, so, you know, that bit in Peter Pan, just to yes. you know bring a really good cultural reference in, of course. But, you know, it's like, I do believe in fairies. I do believe in Brexit. I do. I do. And, you know, the more you keep insisting it, the doff protest too much sort of thing. Um, but it's, a, right. it's the well, same. Well, if you stop saying you believe in Brexit, then Brexit dies. Exactly. So. You've got to keep saying it. And we've been hearing it for six years. And if, you know, if there is out there some sort of politics answer to Mystic Meg, if they could let me know how much longer we have to wait for, that would be, you know, just to ease the mind, that would be brilliant. Um, but then fear not, because Michael Gove was ready and waiting in the wings to pick up the cause. Um, he was saying that they, you know, the vast amount of tangible Brexit benefits so far, but then he couldn't really name any um, on the Today programme. I think he was asked this morning six times to name how Brexit had made business easier um, and he started off by saying, well, we got rid of cap and we're replacing it with a system of uh, public finance for public goods, to which Nick Robinson said, you know, well, if I were from the CBI, I'd be saying, is that it? Um, and Gove spent the remainder of the segment sort of fumbling and saying, oh, well, I have loads to say on this. I've loads to say on it. Don't cut me off. And then he never actually got round to saying what he had loads to say on. So, um, yes. you know, it's a good week. But then again, I will add, I know you're going to talk about this later, Steve. I will add, at least he wasn't a certain someone who won comeback of the year and then thanked his friends, family and the bond markets. Oh, well, I mean, yes, I will say I've got I will say something about that later <laughs> on. Um, uh, yeah, um, he said that farmers were working hard to make our rivers cleaner, our air purer and our soil more resilient. <laughs> That's not a benefit of Brexit. And if we're talking about making British water clearer, I'm not sure Brexit uh, is can be thanked for that. Um, there's been a lot of talk about Swiss-style arrangement this week, Matt Withers. Are you excited about a Swiss-style arrangement? Yeah, this is the story which broke in the Sunday Times at the weekend when a, a source widely believed to be somebody freelancing on behalf of Chancellor Jeremy Hunt briefed yeah. the paper that... Um, Senior government figures were planning to put Britain on the path towards a Swiss-style relationship with the European Union. Uh, cue lots of excited chatter about a Swiss-style deal and a lot of righteous anger from Brexiteers who almost certainly had no idea what sort of deal Switzerland had with the EU. Uh, in actual fact, Switzerland has no one single deal with the EU, but it does have access to the single market through a series of bilateral agreements. And those deals also involve more liberal EU migration and payments to the EU budget. And the EU in recent years has been pushing for the European Court of Justice to have greater oversight in the relationship. Um, as our own Suna Erdem writes in a piece going on our website this week, the EU hates its relationship with Switzerland, and Switzerland hates its relationship with the EU. And uh, Mujtaba Rahman, who is Managing Director for Europe at the Political Risk Consultancy, the Eurasia Group, told her, um, some officials have told me it's possible that the individual who briefed the Sunday Times didn't really understand the implications. Um, but it doesn't really matter anyway. As Ricky Sunak quickly shot the idea down, uh, he told the CBI conference he would not pursue any post-Brexit relationship with the EU that relies on alignment with EU laws. Uh, he added, I know that Brexit can deliver and is already delivering enormous benefits and opportunities for the country, uh, but presumably time constraints meant he was unable to say what any of them were. The, I mean, the, it, there's so much to, to go through with that, isn't there? 
I mean, the, the trade deal that we have got with the EU relies on alignment with EU laws. It, it relies on alignment with EU trading standards and, and stuff like that. And and that's the that's the sort of the point of the trade deal with the EU. So, just, I mean, just complete rubbish. I'm quite. I mean, the Swiss-style relationship sounds quite good, doesn't it? If we had a, do you get what what kind of do you get the large Dark, the dark Toblerone, I particularly like. Um, would 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 that be involved, perhaps, or or maybe a you know some kind of flugelhorn? Um, Matt, there's there's lots of polling out that Peter Kellner has written about this piece uh, mm. this week in the, the New European, and uh, we touched briefly last week on the idea of that maybe Britain nearing a, a tipping point on Brexit. Um, just just talk us through some of the polling and and the idea of this tipping point looming. Yeah. Um, so Peter Kellner, the, um, the the patriarch of polling, the the, yes. the connoisseur of canvassing, um, he's written a, an excellent piece. You can find the paper this week, um, saying that one YouGov poll shows that by fifty six percent to thirty two percent. Uh, British people now say it was a mistake to leave the EU. Uh, another poll shows 70% of the trading relationship with the EU. Uh, and a third poll for the Brexit-supporting channel GB News showed that 50% of people thought Brexit was a mistake. Um, listen to this clip of presenter Martin Daubney reading out the results of the poll and see if you can spot the moment when he realises what the actual result is. OK, well, thank you for that. Um, the voters voted to get Brexit done. And some breaking news on the GB News poll, which has just closed. You also voted to get Brexit done, despite a late surge from the Romaniacs, sorry, the Remain camp. Uh, basically, it is now... Right, we'll take a look at the detail after the break because we've still got so much more to come in the programme today. To Capital, the Office for Budget Responsibility now predicts that next year Britain will be the sick man of Europe once again, uh, with the sharpest economic decline in the continent. And as Piers Morgan, who vehemently opposed calls for a people's vote, commented on Twitter, it's time to admit that Brexit has been a disaster. So, as you say, Peter writes about whether this is a tipping point, meaning... Um, when a view becomes firmly entrenched with the public, um, in this case, that Brexit was a bad thing, rather than something which bends in the wind with events. Um, in polling, he writes that, that shallow views and short-term fluctuations have often been the norm. But from time to time, there has been a, a tipping point when attitudes harden decisively towards the government of the day. Um, if you think of kind of Black Wednesday, that type of thing. And this yeah. could be um, one of them. Interesting, William Hague, who is not a, a hardline rejoiner, um, wrote in his Times column this week about that 56% YouGov poll. And he said, if over the next few years that 56% rises and the evidence of time suggests that Britain is doing badly, the electoral landscape to future election in 2028 or 2029 will be very different. That will be a long enough period for the electorate to come to a judgment. And if that judgment were to be that Brexit had been a serious mistake for closer material links with the EU to become a very popular cause, which broadly echoes Peter's view that even if we haven't reached uh, an electorally decisive tipping point on Brexit, effective campaigning could definitely achieve one. Yes, I think all that is uh, all that is 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 ahead. Um, those polls need to be steady, don't they? But you know, I mean, the idea that it was a mistake, I think, has has, has been in the lead in polls pretty much almost all the way, apart from the the brief period of sort of Westminster stalemate, which allowed Boris Johnson to uh, nick in and, and win his near landslide in in twenty nineteen. But I think we've still got a, a a way to go yet, and. 
talking of Boris Johnson, Ellie, I mean, he is really the last person I want to hear from now. But he he's he has we, we've heard from him. Um, he was he's been interviewed by CNN. I think he was he was somewhere abroad because he was talking about your audience. I don't know whether he was in America or somewhere else. He was saying your audience don't really want to hear about British politics. Uh, they want to hear the worldview. Um, let's just hear what he said in this CNN interview. And he was talking about Liz Truss's mini budget. Uh a, a mini budget or whatever. Uh, the, 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 it's kind of like when I play the piano, right? The notes individually sound perfectly okay, but they're, they're, not, they're not in the right order. And, and, and or, 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 you know, occurring at the right time. And I think that's what might be my comment on, the, on some of the measures in that. Um, and that is obviously a brilliant joke, and it was an even better joke when Morecambe and Wise made it uh, in 1971. I think it was in their Christmas special, 51 years ago then, uh, in a sketch with uh, Andre Previn. Um, Ellie, you're a massive Boris Johnson fan. You must be delighted to, to see him back on the scene, and, and he's, he's celebrating a big anniversary, isn't he? That, that's right, Steve. I'm absolutely overjoyed just in time for the festive season and Black yes. Friday. What other deal could you really wish for? Um, it almost seems that the minute you sort of stop thinking about it, I'm up he pops, you know, somewhere or other doing some sort of speaking engagement or some sort of, you know, something or other. Um, it was the CNN interviews in Portugal, if I'm not much, much mistaken, which is when he sort of quite patronizingly, to be honest, said, you know, not that, you know, that's as expected, but said to the audience, oh, you know, well, if you if they don't know what you're going on about and they don't want to know. And Richard Quest was saying, yes, they do. And yes, they want to hear what you're trying to say. And it's quite insulting to think that, you know, a room full of an audience and a room full of experts, you know, just because you're outside the border, don't really care about what's going on in another country or aren't informed about what's going on in another country. But there you go. Um, as for big anniversaries, it is one year or roughly one year since he told us all that we should go to Peppa Pig World or Peppa Pig Land, whatever that extraordinary place is called, um, and said, you know, it's run on efficiency and it's really quite good. And then he said, oh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, when he was shuffling around all those notes at the CBI speech, which really was, when you look back, sort of the, or must have been roughly the beginning of the end. Um, I don't think there was much, you know, upward trajectory or recovering since that. Um, but no, the, the interview really was quite strange because then he called this concept of him not talking about British politics abroad, as, as we heard, the Johnson Convention and how, you know, he doesn't really talk about internal affairs and domestic issues when abroad, which I feel like, as you say, has just not ever been the case at all. Um, he was then later asked, you know, the concept of him or the idea of him, you know, returning as leader once again or returning as prime minister once again. And, you know, he's literally just sat there like a cartoon and scratched his head and things like that when then later asked about, um, oh, is there anything you would have done differently? And to see it literally put quite literally, like um, like very cartoon-esque, sat there like scratching my head. Is there anything I would have done differently? Well, I don't know. And it was just, it's the typical sort of fumbling Boris Johnson that we always expected to see come back on the same sort of, you know, doing the rounds of, events and talking points and this that and the other but yeah it was um as you can tell I'm overjoyed to see him come back yes I mean he the, the he also um he was asked about returning as prime minister wasn't he and, and sort of gave the the kind of answer which 
made it very clear that while he while he was saying there's not a chance that I will return as prime minister, it, it made it quite clear that, that he believes that there's every chance that he he will be returning as prime minister. Uh, um, and then he he insulted the Germans uh, quite remarkably. Um, he said uh, Germany wanted Ukraine to quickly lose the war rather than have a lengthy war. Uh, and he described that as all sorts of for all sorts of sound economic reasons uh, to which the Germans, uh, the Germans called this claim utter nonsense. Uh, and a German government spokesman said, uh, we know that the former prime minister has always had a unique relationship with the truth. And this case is no exception. Um, let's leave it there for now and turn properly to then to Ukraine with this week's interview. Matt Withers, can you tee this one up for us? Yes. Earlier, I had the great pleasure of speaking to Owen Matthews, the writer, historian, journalist and former Moscow correspondent for Newsweek about his new book on Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. Here's our chat. I'm joined now by Owen Matthews, author of the new book Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war against Ukraine, described by the Times as not only one of the fastest, but also likely to be the best book about the invasion. Owen, welcome to the New European podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about the book, let's briefly talk about you, because I feel one of the reasons we don't understand the reasons behind this war is because we don't understand Russia. Uh, you clearly do. Just tell us a bit about your background and your relationship with Russia. Well, yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a great Russian uh, author, Fyodor Chuchev, who said in the 19th century that, that Russia could not be understood. You can, Russia can only be believed in. So I'm not sure to the extent to which I understand Russia. But um, my mother is Russian and I spent um, a large chunk of my career as a reporter uh, working as a Moscow bureau chief for Newsweek magazine for many years. And um, uh, ancestrally, my family are actually... Uh, Russians who you know were part of Russia's imperial and then Soviet project in Ukraine. So actually, uh, for me, Ukraine is actually rather a personal thing connected with you know many generations of of, of my family's history. Although I myself was born and, and, and grew up in in London. Is is there something unique to the Russian psyche that we need to understand in order to understand the thinking behind this invasion? Uh, that's 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 an excellent way to put the question. Um, there, uh, yes, I think there is something unique about the Russian psyche. But um, uh, first and foremost, I think the lesson of this war is not really a question of you know Putin didn't launch the invasion because he's Russian and there's something about Russians that makes him invade countries. That's not the answer. Uh, there's uh, something about the Russians that makes them uniquely, I think, susceptible to various strains of paranoia. And that's actually been described, you know, in the 1940s, George Kennan described, you know, Stalin's fear of encroachment, of, of, of being surrounded. And going back to the 19th century, Russia's always been afraid of, 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 of invasion, you know, not totally unjustifiably. So, you know, that's the sort of intrinsic Russian part of, of Putin's thinking is that he bizarrely, and perhaps the most surprising single thing about the reporting of this book is that he and the people around him really believe and still believe that they're fighting a war of defense against Western aggression. And they were sort of forced to do it because they were convinced that America particularly is trying to affect regime change systematically inside Russia and undermine Putin. And furthermore, that the 
that Ukraine is just a stalking horse for uh, America and a, and, a, and a vehicle for America to overturn Russia. That's very interesting. So you you believe that they believe that because a lot of people would assume that rhetoric to be for a domestic audience. But you you think that they genuinely hold these beliefs? Uh, I think they genuinely do. I think they really do hold those beliefs. Um, and they um, one of the problems uh, about Putin, uh, you know, um, about any kind of dictatorial regime that's been in power for twenty years, is you know the echo chamber effect. And um, I mean, it has to be said that, that you know democracies are not totally immune to this either. If you read you know, Bob Woodward's plan of attack, the story of the Bush administration's attack on 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 the Iraq war, there was a lot of groupthink and and, and echo chambering uh, going on there. But the the problem becomes extraordinarily acute and problematic in Putin's Kremlin. In other words, the simple way to say that is, you know, people around him tell him what he wants to hear. And so he's just being deluged with information, both that you know, the Americans are using Ukraine as a sort of vehicle to undermine Russia. And most importantly, he was grossly misinformed about what the uh, mood among ordinary Ukrainians was. Um, he was convinced um, that the Ukrainians would um, greet invading Russians with open arms. Who, when you talk about the, the, the people around him, who is in his circle now? Who does he listen to? Well, it's an extremely small group of people, uh, and 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 it's uh, it, it, what actually goes on in the in the black box, uh, which is the upper inner circle, is is very hard to know. But who they are, we do know. They specifically a man called Nikolai Patrushev, who is uh, who. Um, Putin knows from the KGB, um, they met in 1975 in Leningrad. And uh, Alexander Bortnikov, who's another old KGB man, Sergei Nar- uh, who's, um, and Patrushev is head of the Security Council, former head of the FSB. Uh, Bortnikov is current head of the FSB. Putin himself is a former head of the FSB. The three most powerful men in the country are former or current heads of the Federal Security Service, the successor of the KGB. And around him, there are people like Sergei Narushkin, again, 70s, again, KGB, again, Leningrad, uh, who heads the Foreign Intelligence Service. And the sort of odd man out, I would say, is the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who's uh, Putin's known since the 90s, um, who is not a KGB man, in fact. Uh, he's uh, he's an engineer, but he's uh, um, he runs the defense ministry, and he's sort of known... He's a personal friend of Putin, and he's sort of known as a capable head, a pair of hands, and a sort of reliable executor of Putin's orders. Uh, and these people, they they are to a man true believers, or 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 do they live in in fear? Um, I think those those that inner circle, I think they are true believers, and that's kind of the problem actually, because. Um, and it's and and it's not an academic historical debate either, because we're going to have to be dealing with these people and the makeup of the Kremlin elite, you know, quite carefully. And it's going to be over as as the war reaches its endgame. Why? Because I think a large majority of the Russian elite, you know, middle class Russians, businessmen, and so on. You know, people who are tra- well traveled and international Russians with money, you know, are frankly appalled by this war and think it was a terrible mistake and a disaster and it's incredibly bad for business. So, but the people with the money are not in charge of either the war or of Russia. The, the, the people with the guns are in charge of the war and of Russia. And that much smaller inner top elite are the believers. They don't care about 
the oligarchs money they don't care about russia's economic future really um and the real paradox is that actually something that is objectively disastrous for russia i.e the war cutting off European gas money, you know, destroying the economy and that kind of thing. Things that are obje objectively terrible for Russia are in fact not terrible for the elite. They've, they've got the Russia that they want. It's cut off from the West. The Russian elite no longer has any divided loyalties. They're not making any money by business with the West. They're not likely to, they're much less likely to side with any kind of Western-backed coup in Moscow, which they're also terrified about. Uh, and that's really the frightening thing about this war, is you have a group of very paranoid men um, who are willing to sacrifice you know, the rational uh, interests of their country in the, in, in, in the name of what they see as, as its security. I mean, I'm, I'm possibly getting ahead of myself here, but it occurs to me that all of these men, and, and they are all, all men, seem to be around or above the average age of life expectancy in in Russia. I mean, what happens after that? Is is regeneration below them, and how do they how do they feel? Well, that's a brilliant question um, because um, uh, essentially uh, Russia is a gerontocracy; it's the rule of the elderly. And um, what they've achieved is rather rare. Is they uh, I mean, perhaps many old men dream of this, but very few achieve it, which is to create a future which is in the exact image of their own past. There is the, the whole story of Putin's Russia, which is indeed run by people who are in their, in their, in their late 60s, early 70s, um, which is already past indeed the average life expectancy of the average Russian male is 67. Um, there, there are people who are dragging Russia back to the future and their vision is, there's no connection between their vision um, and the reality of the world um, that actually made Russia rich. And the younger people are appalled. The younger generation inside the Kremlin um, made a choice for, to not oppose it. So you have someone like Dmitry Medvedev, who was the stand-in president for, for, for four years while Putin sort of took a back seat, technically speaking, between 2008 and 2012. And he was, you know, young, dynamic. Was you know, met Steve Jobs, had an iPhone, and that guy, Dmitry Medvedev, has decided that the way to get ahead in the Kremlin is to be as hawkish as possible, as aggressive as possible, as bloodthirsty as possible. He's become like a major super hawk, and that's really kind of scary when you have a younger generation of leaders who are precisely they're not challenging the old generation; they're just you know, parroting the older generation. Um, coming back to the the, the invasion, then um, you're right. He didn't tell members of his security council about his plans until that incredibly odd televised meeting on on, on February the 21st, and appears to chime in the fact that the the military had very little input into this planning. That that would appear to me to be crucial. That the fact that this was politicians designing a, a military strategy, was it not? Well, that's that's a brilliant question. I mean, I, I, it, and, and you clearly understand you know, what, what, what happened very, very profoundly. It was one of the, um, I'm, I'm a journalist, I'm not a military expert, but I'm a military expert and, on, and uh, certainly you know, senior NATO people um, who've been, um, um, have remarked on how bizarre it is that the major part of your military invasion plan, i.e. to decapitate Kiev, is literally a secret not just from you know the rank and file soldiers you can kind of understand that in terms of operational security but it's a secret from the general officers i mean that's just nuts the operational plans 
were literally sealed and they were only they weren't really sort of thought through or 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 or, or game planned except um you know at the very last minute um the inner circle many members is one of the things i say in my book is that uh uh, in that very strange Security Council meeting uh, televised on February 21st, there were only four people in the room, and this is from a source who had lunch with Putin's press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, on the Monday after the uh, first Monday of the war. Peskov himself said there were only four people in the room that knew the full military plan. It was Putin himself, Bortnikov, Patrushev, Shoigu, and Narishkin, so four people in it, plus Putin. All the rest of the, the actual Security Council of Russia did not know the full extent of the invasion plan, specifically the plan to try and decapitate Kiev. I mean, that's you know a level of paranoia and irrationality that's very, very scary. Mm. Um, as the as the troops built up on the Ukrainian border, then what did I mean? This is a strange question. But what did they think they were there for? But basically to, to shake down Ukraine, and presumably they didn't. Nobody thought until the last minute that they were going to. Um, have a full-scale invasion? Well, um, the, the, the the big debate, and the debate that I found myself, I personally found myself on the wrong side of, was, um, you know, is this, you know, is it an actual invasion plan, as the Americans had been, you know, had, had been predicting, and, we, and as the American intelligence had had the plans of this um, since October, and Biden was briefed about it. But having a plan is not the same, you know, uh, planning is not the same as intent. Um, the, the paradox, the mystery, the crazy part of this whole thing was that Putin was doing really well out of his plausible threat. You know, the, it was actually really, you know, his saber rattling was, you know, actually getting him some, somewhere finally in back in February. And to answer your question, the troops on the ground, uh, the troops on the ground uh, thought that they were um, immediately before the invasion, they were told by their officers that, that it's, it's going to be a three-day thing. They're going to go, go into drive into Kiev, you know, top topple the government, then drive out again. Um, in the build-up, there were actually three build-ups, which is another reason why many people in the Russian elite and in, in fact me, you know, didn't think that he was going to go through with it. There was a massive build-up in spring of 2021. There was another massive build-up in September, October of 2021, and the third build-up in the spring, you know, over the winter of 2021 to 22 was the real thing. But right up to the last minute, even the Ukrainians, even Zelensky, didn't think that he was going to do it. Right up to the evening of the 23rd, he really believed that Russia was, you know, there was a chance that, that Russia could be you know, dissuaded. I mean, this might seem a trite question. I suspect your answer is going to be no. But is, is Putin possibly insane? I mean, there's been a lot of COD psychology over the past nine months into the impact of him spending, you know, two years of COVID largely alone, supposedly skewing over maps and history books. I mean, you talk about paranoia. I suppose that's not the same as insanity, is it? No, it's not the same. as it, I, I, If you're a, a KGB man, it's literally a professional uh, requirement. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that's literally true. You know, you have to be paranoid and the paranoid survive. Um, the... Um, uh, he's not. He's not. He's 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 not insane. And actually, strangely enough, I think he's actually much more rational than people imagine, uh, given the information that that he had. Really important proviso. If you the, the, if you just won four wars, Putin is the victor of four wars. He won the Chechen War when he came to power. He invaded. He, he won the, the Georgian War in two thousand eight. He annexed Crimea in 2014. He had a very successful military campaign in Syria in 2015. You know, 
In 2014, they could very easily have annexed Eastern uh, Ukraine. And the two times that the Russian regular army actually came into contact with the Ukrainian army in the field in 2014 and 2015, they, the Russians kicked the Ukrainians' backside. There was, it was a total victory. So, you know, if you've won over the Ukrainian army twice, and after 2015, you've poured 7% of your GDP annually into building up your, your military, it's not irrational to think that you're going to kick their backsides again. That was not a crazy assumption on Putin's part. In practice, he was, of course, massively wrong about how effective his army was and how effective the Ukrainians were. But, you know, they definitely were outnumbered and outgunned. And it was kind of surprising. Um, and it surprised everyone, including Ukraine's closest allies, how well they did and that they won. So, um, you know, the, the, the Putin is not insane. He's just misinformed. Yeah, a combination of um, hubris and uh, a, a lack of credible information, perhaps. Yeah, precisely. And 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 he um, and neither was his information totally, you know, uh, uh, totally uh, crazy either. Because actually, um, in two thousand and fourteen, there were major pro-Russian demonstrations in eastern Ukraine. I was personally there in Dnipropetrovsk and Odessa and and in Kharkiv. There was a you know very strong anti uh, you know the, the anti-Maidan feeling, you know, the, the strong feeling against the pro-Western protesters that had kicked the government out in February of 2014. Lots of Russian speakers in the East, you know, really felt strongly that that was a bad thing. And they supported the pro-Russian president, Yanukovych, who was kicked out. And um, there are there are many, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they wanted to join Russia, but there was a very sort of strong anti-Kiev feeling in the East. And I think if Putin had done a full-scale invasion then, then he would have had a different result. But what he, his mistake in 2022 was to assume that the, the same thing would happen again, that the East would rise in favor of Russia. In fact, he was wrong. It didn't. It was the opposite, that actually the East turned out to, you know, you know millions of people preferred to flee for the safety of Europe or for or of Western Ukraine, rather than be liberated by Russia, and that was that that was the basis of Putin's miscalculation. But in fact, it was not based on a crazy premise. There were a majority of people, and there still are a rather smaller majority now, minority now of people who are Ukrainian citizens who don't want to be Ukrainian citizens. Crimea is an excellent example. You know, however illegal the annexation, however staged and sort of uh, an unfair the uh, the referendum of 2014 were, the fact is that Crimeans do not feel themselves to be Ukrainians. They feel themselves to be either independent or Russians, but definitely not Ukrainians. Um, in Donbas, it's more complicated, but there's definitely a minority of people in Donbas who you know, don't want to be Ukrainians and do want to be Russians. And that's going to be the major problem and uh, of the end of the game of this war is how do you, you know, what, what happens when you start drawing and redrawing international maps? That's, you know, really dangerous, a dangerous occupation. And the Ukrainians, whatever the outcome is, the Ukrainians are going to cry uh, treason they're going to consider themselves to be betrayed because i think they're going to end up losing inevitably losing some of their territory um, you write that putin's russia has become a kind of death cult um how far is he willing to go would he would he risk nuclear war rather than admit defeat uh that's a really 
uh, I mean, that's that, that's really the, the big question that, that bothers the Chinese. Uh, they're obviously sufficiently concerned to make that the central plank of their entire diplomacy towards Russia is don't use nukes. So um, uh, it's really hard to answer that question because any regime that's capable of blowing up the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines uh, which I think uh, is seems to I, I haven't heard any kind of plausible explanation for anything any other culprit other than Russia itself. Any regime that's capable of that level of self harm is, you know, profoundly uh, unpredictable and ready to make enormous in, in, to, to 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 go to a level of self harm and and uh, uh, that's incomprehensible and frankly you know beyond beyond the strictly rational so um i can't ever i can't rule it out it would be the regime suicide it would be personal suicide the chinese would immediately i think drop russia like a hot potato um and that, that would be game over but um you know that the the leadership is sufficiently i think unhinged and uh or, or, sorry, or disconnected i should say from reality um that um you know you can't totally rule it out and that's why the west is so worried what's um putin's best case scenario now because he, he has to has to present some kind of victory domestically doesn't he how, how does he think this works out best for him he just hangs on i think i mean the um the, the the crazy thing was that actually if Putin was you know, a master strategist and a great genius as as, as many people in the, in the West considered him to be until he made this you know epic disaster of the of a war, um, if he really was a strategic genius, he would have just like called a halt. Let's say over the summer when they when the Russians took Lysychansk and it's a major town in in in, in Lugansk. You know that, and you know he he would have just drawn a line and say like you know okay now my work here is done you know thank you very much you know gentlemen let's come to the table, and that actually would have very much split the allies actually if uh, if he if Putin had chosen to put a full stop while he was still winning, now that he's losing um, you know he lost in Kharkiv he lost Kherson and now that he's on the back foot it's much harder of course to call for talks when you're in a uh, uh, I mean, it's it's it's, um, it's much harder for talks to happen when you're losing. The Ukrainians are very reluctant to come to the negotiation table because they think they can they they can roll him back, and uh, that's um, I think the most likely. I mean, the best case scenario for Putin is just to you know hang on to as much as of, of Donbass as as he can. The, the 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 there's there's several like sort of crucial pain points. One of them is um, uh, Pidikorp and Novokhovka, and those, in other words, Crimea. So he went to war to create a corridor between Russia and Crimea. That was one of the major strategic goals of his operation. Um, if that land corridor is cut off and it's no longer a land corridor, then the whole thing will have been completely useless. So they're going to fight tooth and nail for that. Um, but on the other hand, so are the Ukrainians. So. Uh, the best case scenario is for Putin to just keep on fighting and, you know, try and hope that Western support for Ukraine crumbles, that his uh, volume of sort of dumb artillery and, uh, you know, sheer manpower are going to fight the Ukrainians to a standstill. That's that, that's his only strategy because he's, you know, he's, he's not going to take any more land. He just has to you know, fight a bitter rearguard action.
for as long as as long as the Ukrainians until the Ukrainians give up, basically. And, and finally, how how do you see this playing out in in reality when you come to write the the, the final chapter of the the paperback, whenever whenever that will be? How, how does this end? Uh, well, I, I, it's unfortunately um, I was speaking to well, I was, I, was, I was speaking to Ben. It's not unfortunate that I was speaking to Ben Wallace. Unfortunately, come. <laughs> As I told Ben Wallace last night at the Spectator Parliamentarian of the Year Awards, I don't really see any other way of it ending other than peace without honour. Sadly, sadly. And Wallace disagrees. Wallace is um, one of the, rather like the Poles, I think the Brits have come to the conclusion that the Ukrainians have to be supported right to the end and um, Russia has to be kicked out of every inch of Ukraine. But I think that's, frankly, massively optimistic. And... Um, Certainly parts of the American establishment in Washington, the French, definitely um, the Chinese just support uh, in a peace more or less at any cost or rather at the cost of some Ukrainian land. Um, so I but, and, and I think I fear that the, in practice, that's what's going to happen is that Ukraine is going to have to is going to be under increasing pressure to exchange land for peace um, and they're going to resist it. And that's why. Uh, and also giving away land for peace is politically totally unsurvivable, not only for Zelensky, but for, you know, for any uh, Ukrainian leader. And it's a major, major problem for for Ukrainian government going on, get going, going forward. And of course, there's completely devastated infrastructure and economy uh, for Ukraine. So um, I, 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 the, the, the short answer is there's eventually going to be peace and it's going to be. And it's going to be messy, and um, the Ukrainians are going to be are going to cry, cry betrayal. On that slightly pessimistic note, um, it just leaves me to, to thank you, Owen. Overreach, the inside story of Putin's war against Ukraine is out now, uh, available wherever you buy your books. Thanks so much for your time, Owen Matthews. Thank you, my great pleasure. So, uh, Matt, that was your chat with with Owen Matthews. What what stuck out for you the most in there? Um, well, as people might have noticed, uh, my ears pricked up when he mentioned his belief that Putin and the, the the people, the inner sanctum around him, genuinely believe this idea, this notion that they are fighting a defensive war against Ukraine. They're protecting uh, the motherland and its borders against an aggressive Ukraine backed by a, a godless West. Because I'd always assumed, as I, I suspect others did, that that rhetoric was purely for a domestic audience. Um, you know, it looks laughable when when you see the, the, their spokespeople go uh, before the UN, etc., and, uh, and, and trot this stuff out. And I always worked on the assumption that they knew it was ludicrous, but they needed... Um, to keep on board their domestic audience, but he believes that they believe this, and that I found that fascinating. It put a different gloss on on the invasion to me. That if they genuinely believe that this is their motivation, then that alters how this war ends to a certain degree. I think. Yes, uh, Ellie, what 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 was your take on this? Mm, well, Matt, I'm just curious because. You know, you sort of mentioned there about, you know, your ears, ears pricked up and about rhetoric that we'd assumed before in a narrative that almost we were were expecting. The, if I'm not much mistaken, the subtitle of the book, you know, the inside story and the inside scoop on what what's going on. Was it, you know, before going into the interview, 
on the main things and the main takeaways was it what you were expecting and did Owen talk about and come out with the answers that you were predicting did you get the inside story that you thought you were going to get I, I thought it was very in the, the the man is clearly very very well well connected and, and, and well briefed and I thought it was very very interesting uh, I, and the book comes highly recommended that um you did get that kind of scoop on on how few people were involved in in this organization and crucially who wasn't involved predominantly the military and when when you look at that it, it's absolutely incredible that the military really wasn't involved in the planning for a, 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 an invasion of this scale it was purely in the hands of the politicians and effectively at the last moment handed o- over to the military commanders for them to enact something that was so misguided and so poorly informed when you actually hear that from somebody who has been in the room with so many well-connected people, you begin to understand how this war has become so disastrous. It was always going to be disastrous from the way it was conceived. And I guess something that ties in with a piece that's in our newspaper and on our website this week by Lionel Barber. I mean, you talked a bit about how this ends, didn't you? Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting how he talks about he, he does believe that this will end in peace. And, and I suppose on the one hand, you could say clearly it will, that they can't remain at war forever. Although I suppose that North and South Korea have technically been at, at, at war yes. since the end of the, the, the Second World War. But there will be some form of peace. But the, the likelihood of that involving some kind of permanent transfer of Ukrainian land and soil to to Russia and how tenable that is as a long-term piece. Um, I always find it interesting when you hear uh, Jeremy Corbyn's project, I think it's called the Peace and Justice, and people talk about having peace and justice for Ukraine. But I think that you can't have both of those with this current mooted outcome. Yes, there would be peace, but if Ukraine is giving up land that Russia has taken by force as part of that peace, then that's not justice. Um, And if you haven't got both of those, is that a tenable long-term peace? I I don't think so. Yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And and the the piece that I mentioned by Lionel Barber, that's well worth reading for anyone who's not listened uh, read it yet. Um, and one of the reasons he's, you know, he, he says that the Americans are so keen on peace or, or are floating the idea of a negotiated peace uh, while denying that they are really floating it. Of course, General Milley has, has floated it and then been sort of semi slapped down. But one of the reasons that they are so keen on this is the idea that they don't really know what would uh, what would replace Putin, but they think it might be something even worse. So that's worth checking out. Uh, talking of things that are even worse uh, than what we've got now. Uh, Shall we move to the Hall of Shame and put in some more malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers, poisonous pundits? Um, I will start off with Anne Widdicombe, as we always start off with Anne Widdicombe. She writes the world's worst newspaper column in the world's worst newspaper, the Daily Express. Last week, there was a revelation. She was, uh, Anne Widdicombe said it was unthinkable Uh, to consider Margaret Thatcher having a boob job, and that made us all consider Margaret Thatcher having a boob job. Thank you, Anne. This week, she's writing about Brexit, and it's Tim Four Helmets on, uh, because Anne Widdicombe writes, Jeremy Hunt has been Chancellor for five minutes, and he is already slip-sliding out of Brexit. Die-hard Remainers such as Hunt believe the British public blame Brexit for the current economic mess, which has been caused almost entirely by COVID in Ukraine. 
uh, and they will be softened up for accepting EU interference. It's been easy to take advantage of Liz Truss's blunders for Hunt's own anti-Brexit purposes. Hunt's budget was designed to make sure that we would take no advantage of Brexit freedoms, uh, but would instead be an unattractive high-tax economy for any potential investors. Uh, Anne Widdicombe, that's quite something to say about the Chancellor of the Exchequer, isn't he? He's made a, a, a budget, an autumn statement up to make Britain uh, very unattractive. Uh, Anne Widdicombe concludes, a week ago, this would have sounded like Brexiteer paranoia. And guess what? Uh, it still does sound like Brexiteer paranoia. Uh, Anne has also been watching I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And she writes, I'm baffled by the evictions. When I was doing Strictly and Big Brother, I could make a good guess of who was going out next. The rationale of the voting on this programme eludes me. How can a nasty person like Boy George survive, but harmless souls like Scarlett and Charlene get thrown out? Uh, don't bother explaining, she adds. I do not need to know. Um, I have been watching a bit of this series. Ellie, I know you were watching it as well um, for Matt Hancock monitoring purposes. Um it's, it's perhaps the reason I don't know. Let's, I want to get your take on this, Ellie. But I mean, is the reason perhaps that Scarlett Douglas and Charlene White are black? Uh, is that part of the reason that they've gone? And boy, George, who has now gone, is white. Uh, the other only other person of colour that was in the series, Babatunde Aleshi, is the comedian. He went the other night. Six white people left. Um, and then I looked at the, um, I've, I've sort of dipped in and out of this, as I mentioned a, a few weeks ago, but but I mean, it's not an isolated incident. I, I was looking at the Wikipedia page, the, the 66 people have been in the top three or will have been at the end of this series. Uh, and only two of them have been black. Um, there's also been two people, British Cypriot origin, uh, one person of British, Austrian, Filipino origin. Um, but maybe the answer, I don't think it's the answer that Anne Widdicombe uh, is looking for but maybe the answer is that, that a lot of people won't vote for people who don't look like them is I mean is this a is this I don't really follow reality shows very much Ellie is is this a, a trend across reality shows in general um well to bring a real cultural reference there is issues with it people have spoke about on Love Island before I'm sure you guys are avid watchers of that um yes. although I'm not I'm not the biggest watcher, but like you say, I dip, dip in and out. But no, it, in serious note, it's been brought up before that, you know, the presence of, you know, always being an all white cast or, you know, in the issues of body diversity and it all being the same lot each time. And that's why reality TV has come under a lot of slack. And yeah, um, but I'm really now grateful that I have the image of Anne Widdicombe sitting down and snuggling up to watch. I'm a celebrity. Um, I'm curious as to know who Anne voted for and all of that and all of that fallout. Um, and not to, you know, I made the the claim last week that I wouldn't talk about Matt Hancock again on I'm a Celebrity, but here we go. But, you know, he is still there and I will not be happy if he ends up being crowned king of the jungle and he's actually been voted and won something, which will just be a very strange turn of events. And what a time to end, you know, the year on. But there we go. Uh, who do you want in your hall of shame this week then, Ellie? Well, I'm not putting Matt Hancock in. I'm leaving him firmly in, in the jungle. Um, but no, first up for me in the Hall of Shame this week, it's Owen Patterson, because we've all gotten, you know, really bored of not hearing about him and, you know, talking about year anniversaries as well of the Tory sleaze that we heard last year. Um, oh, in a move marvelous. of, I know, in a move of utter irony, the ex-minister is taking the UK government to the European Court of Human Rights over a standards watchdog verdict that he broke lobbying rules. 
Now, as we all remember, he resigned last year after he was found to have abused his role as an MP while working for two firms. As a paid consultant, uh, Patterson reportedly lobbied the government on behalf of two companies that were paying him more than 100,000 a year, the watchdog found. And so a year on, Patterson, a leading Eurosceptic who once campaigned for the UK to break away from the ECHR, is taking legal action in Strasbourg, which um, over the results, which he said was unfair. So there we go. The very definition of a brass neck and a few other words I can imagine as well. Um, and then joining him for me is Suella Bravman, you know, taking up her increasingly usual spot in the Hall of Shame. So as we again all can remember, back in October, Bravman was forced to resign after she shared an official document from a personal email account, only to be reappointed six days later by Rishi Sunak. Um, since then, Labour has kept the issue alive by trying to force the government to release security and risk assessments. And since then, she's also really only created problems for the Prime Minister. And yesterday was no exception. She appeared in front of the Home Affairs Select Committee and did not really have an answer when asked by Tory MP Tim Lockton um, what legal routes lay open to migrants fleeing persecution who are not part of Ukraine or Hong Kong or uh, the Afghanistan relocation schemes. Um, and she didn't have an answer. But then again, why would she? It's not like she's our Home Secretary. Oh, wait. When she eventually responded, she sort of said, well, if you're, you know, if you're able to get to the UK, you're able to then put in an application for as asylum, to which he then responded that for some refugees, illegal entry was the only way to get here, highlighting the shortage of, of safe routes. Um, Braverman then admitted that you, the UK government had failed to control its own borders. But who was to blame for this? Was it her? No, definitely not. Was it the Home Office and her department that she, you know, was in charge of? Nope, not that either. It was the migrants and the people smugglers, and they are to blame for the chaos at Kent's Manston Processing Centre. The very definition of passing the buck. And again, a few other choice phrases and words as well. Yes, something that rhymes with buck, certainly. Matt, mm. uh, with us, who are your picks for the Hall of Shame this week? Uh, well, first into the Hall of Shame for me this week goes Alex Story, who was afforded more than 1,000 words in the weekend Sunday Express to lament Jeremy Hunt's budget and what it means for Britain as a nation, saying the Conservatives had kept pace with Labour's unwanted radicalism and constitutional vandalism. Story, an ardent Brexiteer, lamented, Do you still have any tears left to shed for Britannia? Once majestic and proud, she now lays, lies prostrate, her trident broken, her shield shattered. Having stood resolute in the face of all external foes, she was felled by those for whom she had valiantly fought over millennia. Now that she is down, the scavengers, internal and external, are readying for a feast. In the not-too-distant future, when our, when our island history is taught, children, if they can still read, <laughs> we'll look askance at the United Kingdom's full descent into planned mediocrity. And who is this Alex Story, you ask, whose views the Sunday Express feel its readers urgently need to know? The man decrying Britain's mediocrity is best known for being part of the men's eight rowing team who came eighth in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Also going into the Hall of Shame is Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, who is facing numerous allegations of bullying, not least of which that he hurled tomatoes from a Pret-a-Manger salad at junior civil servants. There are now calls for Raab to face another probe over the charge that he mouthed the word wanker at Keir Starmer during PMQs early this month. Yes, he did. 
well, a report in the Independent, however, said Mr. Rob categorized, he said the word wanker and instead said weaker after Sakir used the word weak multiple times. Dominic Rob is, we can confirm, a complete and utter weaker. <laughs> Superb. A uh, couple more from me then, just to uh, end with. Nigel Farage, long-time visitor to the Hall of Shame, permanent resident in the Hall of Shame, he's furious about the prospect of a Swiss-style deal with the EU. Said this week on Twitter, this level of betrayal will never be forgiven. The Tories must be crushed. Uh, and I wonder, I remember how outraged he was about it in 2016. Uh, he said, in 2016, he said this about the prospect of a Swiss-style deal with the EU. Wouldn't it be terrible if we were like Norway and Switzerland Really, they're rich, they're happy, they're self-governing. But uh, in the darkest dungeon of the Hall of Shame this week, as mentioned earlier by Ellie, it's Rishi Sunak. And after winning Comeback of the Year at the Spectator Awards, he decided to make a joke uh, in the manner of, uh, I guess, those um, that, that sort of thing where the uh, president gets up and makes quips uh, with members of the, the press. Um, I think he probably got this wrong. He joked... I must dedicate this award to my friends, my family, and of course, to the UK bond markets. Uh, and just a reminder that the reaction of the UK bond markets to Liz Truss's madness uh, wrote £30 billion off the UK economy. It made millions and millions of people worse off too. Uh, but Rishi Sunak got made the Prime Minister out of it. So let's just all have a laugh, eh? Uh, that was the New European Podcast with Eleanor Longman-Rood, Matt Withers and me, Steve Anglesey. Uh, thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to our producer, John Dakin, too. Uh, a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the excellent price of a pound a week for digital, two pounds a week for print and digital. No tickets to Peppa Pig World included. Uh, to get that price, you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, and if you like this podcast, then give it a lovely review, uh, a nice ratings wherever you can, and you can subscribe to on your podcatcher of choice. You can join our Facebook readers group. And until Elon Musk burns the whole thing down, you can follow the New European on Twitter at the New European. Ellie, I think on Twitter you are at E Longman underscore rude. And Matt, I think you're at Matt Withers. Is that right? That's Correct. right. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey. So uh, from Matt Withers, goodbye for this week. Bye-bye. And from Eleanor Longman Rude, goodbye for this week. Goodbye. And from me, so long, snowflakes. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.